Today's lesson text comes from the Gospel according to Mark, verses 14 through 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be in honor and in glory to you. Amen. So today we come to a shift in the Gospel of Mark. We have the initial lesson we looked at last week of Jesus Christ, who is this Son of God. And Jesus comes and he's baptized by John, and we find John at the river preaching baptism and repentance. And this kind of is a turn in Mark where there'll be a chunk from here to chapter 3, where Jesus is preaching in Galilee. And it'll start with him calling the disciples next week. He calls uh, the brothers that are out fishing. And in chapter 3, this section will pass as Jesus, by the water yet again, calls the entire twelve. The key thing that Mark is doing in today's passage is here in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. Mark is building that there is a succession going on. And this is because he is calling forth the idea of fulfillment and God being active in the history and in the lives of people. John was the one who Isaiah had, been, had written about in Mark 1 verse 2. See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. And Jesus, now that the messenger has been sent, comes in with his proclamation. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Now, I, I think it's important for us because Mark has summed up Jesus' whole preaching with his phrase, the kingdom of God, to look at that today. But we have the fact that in the Gospel of Mark, the kingdom of God, for how much we say it and how familiar the terminology is, is a bit nebulous. Jesus never gives the succinct definition that us theologians can point to where Jesus says, well, the kingdom of God is A. See the obsolete usage of the word, see here. And I just think when we're trying to go as in-depth with a book as, as we are with this one, we have to resist the temptation also to make a fifth gospel. Now there's a perfectly good time for systematic theology where we go and look up everywhere that Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and build a nice theological system around that. The problem with that is, is if we get too in the habit of doing it, we start creating fifth Gospels. And that would be in a case where we have the story of Matthew, Luke, Mark, and John, and we take all that information and we kind of build our fifth synthetic system, and we lose the authority of letting Mark talk for himself, which was our whole point of last week's sermon, when we asked the question where Mark introduces Jesus Christ the Son of God, what do those words mean? Let's let Mark tell us. So the kingdom of God and Mark's telling again has to bring us to the fact that we have to let him explain it. And Mark's going to do that through the whole thing, and I don't want to tip my hand too much. But I think we can start here by going after what the kingdom of God isn't. 
just like the terms son of man, just like the terms son of God, the Jewish people in Jesus' day had an idea about what the kingdom of God was. For them, that typically entailed the vision of the kingship of the Lion of David. Israel in its history literally had a kingdom that literally was given to them by God. It was very easy for them to tie those two ideas together. It was a theocratic version of government. And you'll find again in all the Gospels and the story of Jesus, there's always that contention between the temporal idea of Israel, the people's longing for restoration of a political state under a Davidic king, and the idea that it's also the kingdom of heaven, that it's God moving among his people. And that tension is ultimately part of Jesus' undoing in crucifixion. When he comes in on Palm Sunday, they're cheering, yay, he's going to beat up the Romans. But when they arrest Jesus, he can look them in the eye and say, my kingdom is not of this world, otherwise my Jesus would never let you take me. And that core, that it is not of the world, is actually already here in what Mark is saying. And, and to just kind of lay off the first century folks and, and get a little bit closer to home, we today also have a tendency to take the kingdom of God and put it in a temporal terms. Now, I can go back in history and show where this is really something that nowadays we cringe at. If you were to go back to Byzantium, the Eastern Roman Empire, with orthodoxy and patriarchy and the cool little mosaics and the Hagia Sophia, well, for them, the kingdom of God was literally the rule of Caesar and the patriarch together. They had inherited Rome, which became the Christian nation, and it was through Caesar and his ties to the church that the kingdom of God would come. And it wasn't just an Eastern phenomenon. Those ideas spread through the West till eventually you ended up with the Crusades. It's not for nothing that the, albeit terrible movie, is called the Kingdom of Heaven. And the Crusaders thought that through the power of their swords, just like the ancient Israelites had thought through the power of theirs, they could establish God's kingdom on earth. Now it's easy for us moderns to sit there and well, that, that, that's savage. But we, in these days, may not trust the power of the sword, but we still very much look to human effort to bring about the kingdom of God. As heirs to the Victorian world, to the Victorian mindset, the kingdom of God in the 1800s morphed into a world of making the earth good. We're commanded in scripture to, to feed the poor, to clothe the naked, to heal the sick. And there was very much the idea in the Victorian age that that was what was going to bring about the kingdom of God. It came forth in some bad ways in which you had colonialism where that idea we were bringing the kingdom became the justification for whatever was done to native peoples. But just as much, if that's how it showed negatively in colonialism, it also had effects here at home. There were ideas that 
if we could make society completely equitable, somehow through human endeavor, that would establish God's kingdom. And churches started in the 1900s. There's good and bad versions of it. But they started very much to practice what was called the social gospel. And the idea was, was that it laid in the hands of God's people to bring about the kingdom of heaven by doing good deeds. All that resting on what people do very much goes against what Jesus is doing in this, in this passage and what he's actually preaching. When Jesus is, in, is here in verse 15 saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. The action in the Greek and even the understanding of the people that wanted the warrior Messiah was that this kingdom, in Aramaic, it's, translated, it's even better, this sovereignty of God, is an action that God is doing. Even just using the word God in the Hebrew mindset calls up the whole Old Testament. That there's no way to say the sacred name, Yahweh, without recalling Moses and the burning bush. The, the very mention of God brings up the Ten Commandments in the Hebrew mindset. So this idea that the kingdom, the rule of God, was coming meant very much that this was something that God was doing. And that's why Mark here, as we started, is building a successional plan. God was working through the prophet Isaiah saying, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. God was working in sending John. And now God, in the person of this Son of God, this mysterious Jesus, not the rest of the Bible to the end of this gospel, but now he has showed up and said, The kingdom of God has come near. Now, we can tip our hand a little bit. We know that when Jesus says this, the kingdom of God has come near, it is a physical nearness. Christ among his people is the kingdom of God come. But it's also a temporal aspect. There was whatever was going on in the world before Jesus started preaching. There was John out there. There was the baptism and repentance. But 14, now after John was arrested, after that moment happens, God makes the move so that Jesus comes to Galilee and proclaims. This is a very different confrontation than what, what we get to when we try to put it on human action. This is not the kingdom of God is coming, put your hands to the plow and help. It's not a coming that requires the, crus the crusader to go out and to defeat evil. It's not a kingdom that is coming that requires you to go out and do the good works. So those are good and we're called to do them. This is the kingdom is coming whether you like it or not. Because the main thing Jesus is doing there, and when we get to him preaching, you're going to find Jesus is a little bit of a hellfire preacher. <laughs> but what Jesus is saying is that God has made his move. And there is only, from that point, the reaction to it. Jesus is going to be so divisive on his calls and on his come with me or don't because the action is happening. So when Jesus says in 15 again, the kingdom has come, repent and believe in the good news, it's a different repent than John had. 
Because we found John, we, we poured, he baptized in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John was preaching the old repentance. The, the come back to God, the, the apologize for the bad things you've done, don't do them again. Jesus is using the word repent a little bit more than what you almost say the technical Greek matter, where the change of mind has to come. Yes, the repentance from sins is in there, but he is going to eventually shock his listeners to the point that they have to completely change their mind about things. Because this kingdom of God is one of those very things they'll have to change their mind about. For the first century Jewish person, the kingdom of God they were looking forward to was the political power that they used to have and liberation from the Romans. Jesus is going to confront them with a kingdom of God that is subject still to the Romans and all those things that they do not like in life. They are looking for the glory of God coming down with an army of angels to defeat all their enemies, and Christ is going to show them the glory of God in being hung upon a tree. And that same conflict and challenge is facing every Christian generation since. And we can see in history where it has failed. Those medieval crusaders began to pick on them. They thought that the glory would lie in reconquering and enforcing. But if they did show Christ forth in their actions, it was when they lost anchor. It was when they were knocked back. That's actually where they were learning. That's where the changes of knowledge and those wonderful things that started to tick off in the mind of Martin Luther the Reformers about critical reading Canaan, the gift to the Christian world was not winning crusade battles. One can be a little bold in regards to the social gospel. I think one of the one of the benefits we've had from the social gospel has not been Okay, it's good to do good things. I don't want to be a pastor who has a baby and like, yeah, you shouldn't be poor people. We do that and we do a great job. We need to do it in this church and keep on doing it. Don't think I'm, I'm disparaging it. But by and large, in Western societies, we've solved a lot of problems. If you compare us to the 1700s, it's amazing what, what the charities and the goodwill of people have done. In some ways, though, that has forced the church that was very focused on those issues of overseas missions, of addressing the poor, to start asking themselves new questions. Poverty is comparatively at its lowest ebb that it ever has been, at least globally. Churches are now getting confronted with the fact that, okay, there's always an issue in, in just human existence, that once you get rid of the evil, once this John repentance and confession of sins, once that's gone, you still have opened the vacuum of what do you do now? Because imagine it, there's many people who preach a gospel of fixing evils in the world today. They think that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God will come if we take this core issue and we resolve it. Humanity will still be pushed and still need to find answers to all of its deep questions, even if we do that. So let's take a, let's be hands, it's a little risky, but let's take the issue of gun violence. 
If we somehow figure out how to solve it completely so that it was an issue of the past, that would not change the fact that for the man and woman on the street, they still have to face questions of what does my life mean? What is my value? What is my relationship to my creator and the rest of nature? And that goes for the whole list of social ills that we normally look at as the things we have to solve for the kingdom of God. That elimination of negative, defeating the serious thing or whatever it is, ignores the fact that there needs to be a positive, a guiding notion. And that's the real reason we also look at this and say, God is doing the action. Because that basic inability of us to answer that question, what is my purpose, what is my need, where am I being guided in my life, lies in that core disconnect between humanity and God. We are in the tradition of the Hebrew. This is in the tradition of sin and a broken relationship between man and creation. And even if the evils of that broken relationship are gone, that break is still there. So Christ coming, taking on flesh, God moving into humanity, this is also an action of God in creating a new connection, creating a new source of meaning and a new thing beyond what the world can see. And that's what Jesus is really, really getting at and saying here. He says, the kingdom of God has come near Repent or change your thinking. We are so often, Jesus will use this metaphor himself, that the concerns of the world are like weeds. And he tells his disciples, get your eyes up above it, look beyond it, see the big picture. And that's going to be the freedom and the Christian joy when we finally get to the end of the Gospel of Mark and Jesus stands looking above that grave seeing out in new ways and new and exciting things where God is leading and we don't even know where we're getting yet. It, it's a big picture thing. I think we, as we define Jesus through Mark, we lose the, he's the impossible dreamer. He's the guy who stands out and, and watches the sparrows and says, well, God's like, he takes care of the sparrows just like us. And we have to get that aspirational, that sense of meaning of Jesus back into our heads. But this is just the beginning. I don't want to sum the whole thing up at once. So we have, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. We, like these first century hearers, are faced with the fact of what God did. Mark is again not asking, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus like you to do? He is putting it straight to us. This is what God did. Respond. And that has been core to Jesus' ministry since he first appeared here. For the kingdom of God has come near to these Israelites, whether they want it to or not. All that fulfillment and all that hope of the Old Testament, it has been fulfilled in Christ, whether that was how they wanted it to go or not. They are at the point of decision. And unlike the earlier generations, in which this was a future event, and there was some waffling allowed, Jesus will now press to his ears for the rest of this gospel, 
that every time they come to Jesus, it is the moment of confrontation, where they either join the kingdom of God or go to the kingdom of the world, which ultimately is why we must reject the kingdom of God resting in human hands, because Jesus is not preaching that he's going to fix the kingdom of the world, but that he's ultimately going to overthrow it. Yes, dear Christian, do good. Yes, do as the Lord commands in loving one another, in feeding the hungry, in clothing the naked, and taking care of the sick. But remember, our hope is not just in the elimination of evil, but it is in the consummation of righteousness. Let us pray.